I'm, uh, I'm not much for, for talk radio, um, but a few weeks ago, um, on our way home after a visit up in Indianapolis with my, my folks, um, I was listening to some of the talking voices on, on the radio. Um, they were discussing a, a, the imminent death of a, of a young woman by the name of Brittany Maynard. Um, Brittany had been diagnosed with uh, terminal brain cancer um, on New Year's Day of this, this year of 2014. You know, cancer, it, it seems to have claimed so many lives in our generation. Uh, for many, just the mention of it uh, opens up a wound of a loved one that we have lost or is battling through this right now. My mother has a dear friend that's, that's going through a very similar condition, diagnosed with, with terminal cancer just a few months ago, and her health has slowly been in decline ever since. It's a painful condition to journey through. But for Brittany, um, her and her husband made national news when they moved from California to the state of Oregon to become citizens in Oregon. There she would take advantage of Oregon's death with dignity law. Oregon is the only state that will allow a person to, assi- to seek assistance in dying, to, to have a doctor prescribe to them a lethal dose of drugs to, to take their life. So 10 months after being diagnosed, 10 months to the day on November the 1st, this 29-year-old woman took a lethal dose of drugs to take her own life before cancer did. Now for this woman and a majority of Americans, it seems that there's always a desire to be in control, even in one's own death. Now I don't want to talk about right or wrongs inside of this. To be honest, I've struggled with it. Because I've seen people hooked to machines. I've seen people in their last moments dying slowly. I've seen the body begin to decay. But I've also know that, that God is the giver of life. And, and I believe that it's not our place to take that life. Now we all know the truth that these mortal bodies are just that. They're mortal, right? They're not meant to, to last forever. As Paul so elegantly put, they are mere tents in this world. And if you've ever been camping, you know that a tent is not supposed to be a permanent living place. All right? In Genesis 3, it says, From dust you are, and dust you will return. Yet as I look at the life of the Apostle Paul, the one who stated, Follow me as I follow Christ, as I, as I look at Paul's life, I, I see what a Christ follower does on their deathbed. They implore others to continue to do the good work. The Apostle Paul is credited with writing uh, over half of the entire New Testament. Many of his works were, were letters to churches encouraging them to continue to do good work and to bring others to the knowledge and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul understood that sharing the gospel, inviting others into that story, what it, what it looked like. But there is one book that sticks out to me. It's 2 Timothy. That's where we're going to land this morning. If you want to turn there with me, you can. 2 Timothy was not a specifically a, a, a book to a church necessarily, although I'm sure the church read it in that day. It was a letter, a very personal letter to, to Timothy, his young son in the faith. At the time, Paul sat in a dungeon uh, as he wrote this book, a, a prison because he had preached the good news of Jesus, because he was inviting others into the hope of this this, this true hope that he, had, that he had found in Christ. This was not the American prison system either. This wasn't three hots and a cot. Really, it was more of a hole in the ground, something that he had likely been lowered into. There were probably blood and feces and other things spattered on the wall. But this was nothing new to Paul. He knew this. He had experienced lashings. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned before. He had been stoned He had been spat upon and more for simply inviting others into the same hope he had. 
Yet although Paul sat in prison, likely understanding that he would soon die for the cause of Christ, it is from there that he writes this letter to his young son in the faith, Timothy. Not telling him to head for the hills and not asking for a lethal, lethal dose of drugs to take his life. No, Paul on his deathbed encourages Timothy to keep up the work in Christ. That's what I love about Paul. I love his, his passion. I love how he embodied living for Christ and the encouragement he gives to a young minister in the faith. And I believe this morning um, there's much that we can learn from Paul's letter as he, he wrote this on his deathbed. Paul had no greater hope than to see thousands come to the same hope that he had. So the question is, what about you? Right? There's 17,689 reasons, right? That's the number of people inside of the 47501 area code. And in a sense, that number seems, seems crazy to really fathom and think about, to really look upon it and, and recognize that God has entrusted us and our influence for the cause of Christ to these people. And our encouragement um, over the past several weeks has to been to find the few or maybe simply the one that God has been placing in your life to receive an invitation from you to come and to worship here at Bethany Christian Church and to, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a far cry from being in a prison cell on your deathbed and imploring this young minister in the faith especially this minister in a town like Ephesus that would have been filled with moral corruption. Yet I, I don't think it's all that different altogether. While our situation may be a little different, the truth remains, right? There are thousands of people walking amongst us that if they were to die today, they would spend an eternity in hell, separated from the God of the universe, everything that is, is good and the love of Christ. Now, as Paul opens this letter to Timothy, he says it like this. He, he opens with this in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, as, I, as we open, I think we can take the liberty this morning to to write in this. They say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promises of life that is in Christ Jesus to Bethany Christian Church, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today I'd like to look at 2 Timothy with you. And I would, I would like to see what God might be revealing to us inside of this, this passage of Scripture. But before we do that, I'd like to just open with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truths that are presented through it. And God, we pray that, as, as it so, so well tells us, that it is alive and active, and we pray for that life to be found in it this morning as we study it. And we pray that you would reveal to us um, the powerful truths and the, be the encouragement we need to step out into these, these conversations that you've been calling us to have and to invite others into worship here at Bethany. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Pray that you'd be with us this morning. We say all this in your son's name. Amen. You've probably heard the quote, crippled by fear before, right? For, for many, you could, this could not better describe how you, you feel about having a conversation of inviting somebody else to, to church. You see, in a sense, fear has crippled you. You, you recognize that fear. Now, as, now, as a minister, I recognize that fear. As a young minister, after spending two years in full-time preaching ministry at a church in Ohio, I still have people ask me if I get nervous to speak. 
And, and to be honest, this doesn't necessarily scare me, standing in front of others uh, and talking. That, that's not the necessary, the fear that I get. What scares me is the preparation of the Word of God. I, too, have felt that crippling fear because I don't want to do a disservice. I, I don't want to walk in on a Sunday morning and, and share something that is not true inside of God's Word, something that He has entrusted me with. I suppose that's a healthy, a reverent fear, but you know, I, I maybe there's nothing wrong with that. But when the fear cripples me, when the fear causes me not to, to do the right study or, or to, to finish the work that, that has been set before me, that's when the, the adversary wins, when I slink away or when I don't want to stand and, and proclaim the truth. Paul, I believe, knew of that fear, and there's no question he knew that Timothy knew of that fear. Timothy was, was not confident like Paul, necessarily. He, was, he wasn't the bold speaker that Paul was. Timothy was known as having a nervous stomach and being fearful at times to speak up. It was likely uh, even more difficult for him because of that culture that I mentioned that was shrouded in, in just messiness inside of Ephesus. He was being challenged to share the truth of God's word with, with many people that were, well, they were far, far from it. He was being asked to invite others into the same hope that he had. Yet Paul reminds us of this powerful truth this morning, one that we cannot forget. He reminds us that we are empowered. In First Timothy, or Second Timothy, um, chapter one, verses six through eight, it says this. If you want to read along with me, it says, "For this reason, I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us, well, gives us power." It gives us the love and it gives us self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or for me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There have been many weeks when I have been tasked with the call to preach in which I have fearfully sat down in my office, scared to even type a word, uncertain of the direction that God might be leading me to. I've studied, I've prayed, I've given the right time to it, but I still sit unable to do anything. Yet I'm amazed when I remember this truth, when I remember that I have been empowered by the very God that I speak for, that I am overwhelmed and it seems that the message just begins to come forth. And there are many weeks when I look back at the final project uh, of, of spending time and studying, having a sermon lay before me, and I say, how did that ever come together? I recognize that there's no way in my carnal self, my broken nature as a sinful man, that I could have put those things together but it was only by the empowerment of God that I was able to do that. That's what Timothy was being reminded of. He too had been given the same spirit that now resides in you and in I. He was reminded of his spiritual giftedness to, to be a preacher and, and the boldness that came inside of that gift. He was reminded to fan into flames these embers uh, of his ministry and, uh, and, and to see Christ proclaimed. I want you to recognize that truth this morning, that God lives in you. That you are empowered by the God of this universe. And while the call is great, the one calling you is even greater. Listen to the Great Commission as it says it like this in Matthew 28, 18-20. It says, Then Jesus came to them, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then this is key this morning. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
I heard a story of a man by the name of David Phillips. Dave and his wife, Lynn, had, uh, had uh, talked about a call that God had led on their life for a long time. And after a discussion one evening, they realized that they both had a heavy burden on their hearts um, to, to see that young children would not suffer and to help for the, the spread of the gospel to the next generation. So they talked about starting a relief agency. But then the fear began to cripple Dave. Dave was a quiet, behind-the-scenes type of guy. And he knew that if they were to start some sort of organization, most likely he was going to have to speak in front of others. He might have to stand in front of crowds and, and present this ministry that they wanted to start. But after much prayer, Dave decided he had to do what God had been laying on his heart. He set the crippling fear aside, and he and his wife started an organization called the Children's Hunger Fund. The story, the story goes that six weeks after he launched the program, Dave received a phone call from an orphanage in, in Honduras, an impoverished third world country. The, the center that, he, that was calling, from, calling him was a, a cancer research place. And they had seven children that needed help. They needed uh, this, this specific drug to help them uh, stay alive. And the man on the other line said, can you help us find this? The fear began to sink back into Dave. He wondered, I have no clue how I'm going to get this. He thought, there's no way. I, I, I don't know how I can do this. But, but he wrote down the name of the drug. He prayed with the person on the other side of the phone. And then he hung up. But as Dave set the phone down, before his hand even left the receiver, it rang. And to his amazement, on the other line was a pharmaceutical company from New Jersey. They asked Dave if he had the use for 48,000 vials of the exact same drug. If he did, they said, that they could ship it to anywhere inside of the world for free. $8 million worth of a drug made by only two companies inside of the United States at that very moment. And within 48 hours, that drug had arrived at that cancer treatment center in Honduras. Don't allow fear to cripple you. Stand in the gap. Be the voice to your next-door neighbor or to the coworker that God's been laying on your heart, to that family member that you're going to see this Thursday at Thanksgiving, or to that friend that you've been putting off the conversation with, and invite them into worship. And trust that God has empowered you with the gift, and with every spiritual gift that you'll need to have that conversation. Go, for surely he is with you. I have a cousin that in his younger years liked to ride motorcycles. And I don't even know what, if you could call what he did riding of a motorcycle. He was the guy that um, would like to be on the rear wheel um, with his rear end on the gas tank, his feet hung over the handlebars going 70 miles per hour on one wheel. And I was thinking, you are, you're crazy. He'd stand on the back and pull up a wheelie or stop on the front end of the, of the motorcycle. And I just looked at him. I said, I can't believe you're doing this stuff. I like to ride motorcycles, but but not like that. Um, there were many days I'd see him hobbling in and go, what's wrong? His name was Nick. What's wrong, Nick? And, well, I had another crash, and half of his rear end was missing because he had skidded down the road. And, I mean, that's, I mean it's truth. That, that happened multiple times. Um, but I looked at the life of, of my cousin, and hey, he's still alive. He didn't die. You guys are like, oh, gosh, he's, going to, he's still alive. He's, he's actually made some smart, smarter decisions. He, he wrecked a couple too many motorcycles to afford it, I think, anymore. Um, but one moment he told me this. He said, Evan, he said, I'd rather die living than live dying. And I looked at that, and I thought, hmm, makes a little bit of sense, I suppose. 
And I wonder, do we need to ask ourselves a similar question this morning? No, I am not encouraging you to go and get motorcycles and start doing willies on them, all right? What I am encouraging you to is to ask yourself the question, are you living to die or are you dying to live? Paul knew the answer to that question. Paul knew while sitting in the pit of this prison on his deathbed that he had died long ago. Yes, not physically, but spiritually he had died when the Lord had appeared to him, when he had met the Lord face to face in a sense. I suppose you could say that. He was blinded by the light, right? On his way to Damascus, on his way to persecute other Christians. And from that moment on, Paul was no longer living to die someday, but instead he was daily dying to himself in order so that Christ could live in him. And he reminds Timothy of that truth in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It says, here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, well, we will also live with him which is easily tied to our baptism, right? Right When you, you give of yourself in the, the watery grave of, of baptism, you are dying to yourself and you are being raised to walk a new life, to live for Christ. It's the call that modern Christians sometimes forget, that the journey of faith was never promised to be easy. Christ himself shared those words with his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and, and they must follow me. This cross that he spoke about was not a gold-jeweled necklace that you hung around your neck. It wasn't some sort of Christian attire. It wasn't a bracelet of any type. Now, the cross, as the disciples knew it, was nothing more than a torture device that symbolized death. And he's calling them to take up their cross. And he's calling us to take up our cross and to follow him. We are called to put our own desires aside and to, to live for Christ, to die to self and to live for the God of this universe. And while scary at times... The truth is, it's far greater in comparison to the alternative. And when we set ourselves aside and we be, begin to set God on high, great things begin to happen. So how is God calling you today to, to die to yourselves in order that someone else might be invited to come and to worship? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So what about you? Are, you? are you living to die? Are you dying to live? Dying daily to live. Dying to Christ. Dying to his will and not your own. For here's the trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. The NHRA stands for the National Hot Rod Association. I know most of you men probably knew that in here, right? The National Hot Rod Association. The organization was founded in 1951 in California at Wally Parks in order to provide a governing body uh, to organize and promote the sport of drag racing. All right, two cars lining up side by side, hitting the pedal to the metal. Now today, the NHRA the, the boasts that they have over 40,000 drivers on their rosters and claims to have the, the largest motorsports sanctioned body in the world. In the top fuel dragster um, category, there have been record speeds of over 330 miles per hour recorded. Now that's, that's fast. A couple weekends ago, I had the, the opportunity to ride along with one of our state troopers that attends worship here, uh, Andy Watson, and we got on a run and 120 miles per hour that was plenty fast enough for me in the passenger seat. I was thinking, slow it down, Andy. We're going around the turn right now, right? So 330 miles per hour, well, that's, that's fast. And my guess is, if you, you men all here, 
If you're honest, you've all lined up before on 57 down in town, right? The four lights that all turn green at the same time. And you pretended to be a drag racer before. You guys can shake your head. Yes, I've done it. I've done that before, right? Um, but what I find more interesting than the top speeds is the reaction time of a, of a drag racer. They say it's, it happens in point, uh, 0.4 seconds, uh, four-tenths of a second it takes them to react to that green light going. They, they, they know the cadence of the lights. They know when they're going to hit yellow. They know what speed those lights are going to blink. And they know when to hit the gas pedal. And as soon as they hit it, the light's turning green. Exactly at the same moment because they know that cadence of lights. They know what it means to go. As Paul sits awaiting his imminent death, he's not concerned with that death. He's more concerned with the proclamation of seeing the gospel spread. In a sense, I feel Paul has, he's willed Timothy to the start line, right? He's reminded him of the power that's living in him. He, he, he shared the truth that, that long ago you were called into this ministry. So as Paul leaves Timothy with these last words of encouragement, not knowing if he will ever speak to him again, he leaves him with this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read from the paraphrase of the message. It will be up here on the screens. He says, I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. Christ himself is a judge with the final say on everything, everyone, living and dead. He's about to break into the open with his rule. So proclaim the message with intensity. Keep on your watch. Challenge, warn, and urge your people. Don't ever quit. Just keep it simple. You're going to find that there will be times when people will have, well, they'll have no stomach for solid teaching will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on truth and chase mirages. But you, keep your eyes on what you are doing. Accept the hard times along with the good and keep the message alive. Do a thorough job as God's servant. In a sense, Paul's just dropped the green flag, right? The cadence has sounded in those lights and here's the green light and he is telling Timothy, it's time to go. It's time to go and do what you have been called to do. Proclaim the good news and invite others into the hope that you have. That is the Great Commission, right? We are called to go into all the world, right? At the end of the story of the Good Samaritan that we looked at two weeks ago, it says, go and do likewise. And as Paul leaves Timothy with this last bit of a charge, he simply says, go. The work has been set before you. And this is what I leave you with. You have 17,689 reasons. And I hope by now you have begun to see who that one reason is in your life. Who God has been placing into your life to invite and to worship here. You are ready for the journey. Fully empowered by the same Spirit of God that empowered Paul and Timothy in that day. To do great things for the kingdom of God. You also died to yourself when you gave of your life in that watery grave of baptism. And you were raised to walk a new life. And today, it's time to go. It's time to go and to do likewise, to invite others into the hope that you have found, to come and to worship here inside of this fellowship. You see, I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. Christ himself is the judge with the final say on every, everyone, living and dead. He's about to break into the open with his rule. So proclaim the message with intensity. Keep on your watch. Challenge, warn, and urge people. Don't ever quit. Just keep it simple. Aircraft carriers are huge vessels. 
If you've ever had the opportunity to stand on the deck of, a, of an aircraft carrier, you would recognize that they are grand, grand in scale. The, the girth of these ships are, are just tremendous. It reminds me of the, the vast nature of God and his, his, his largeness. They can carry thousands of men and women. They can carry hundreds of aircrafts on their decks. But when a pilot enters the cockpit of one of these aircrafts, uh, located on the deck of a carrier, there's a routine procedure that takes place. And one of the last forms of communication that is had with those on the ground is, is simply this. It means pull the chocks. I'm ready to go. Pull the chocks. Let's get out of here. It's then followed by a person on the ground. He's titled the shooter. And the shooter gets down on one knee and he goes like this. You've seen probably pictures of this happening as a jet is flying off a carrier before. He's the sender. He's shooting them on. He's sending them out. And the truth is, there is a journey ahead of you. God has given you a very specific mission. And a part of that mission is to go. It's to invite others into the hope that you have. On your seats, there are small invite cards that you, you have. Um, those, those are simply prompts. If you need those to help you, encourage you to have that conversation, um, we want you to take those with you this morning. Uh, there, there's some service times and some other things in there along with our address and, and our, uh, our, our website. But this morning, I believe that you're like the pilots on those aircrafts. You're sitting on this, this large vessel a place in Bethany that wants to send people out for the cause of Christ. And like the pilot, it's time to look down and have those last forms of communication and to say, pull the chocks. I'm ready to go. It's time to go. And for me, let me be the shooter this morning. And let me say, go. Go.